0: Uh, good morning, my name is Drew and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we are in the middle of a series, well actually not in the middle, we are coming to the end because next week is Easter, uh, looking at Jesus' passion in the Gospel of Matthew, his journey to the cross, and this morning, uh, if you've not caught on yet, you will in just a minute that we've come now to the, the six hours that he hung upon uh, the cross bearing our sins. Uh, let me reiterate what we've already said. I, I uh, am a busy man with four children And have a million things going on, but I feel like uh, where we have tried to be as minimalistic as possible as a church, uh, because we realize you have busy lives too, and really we want you to be out living your lives because we feel like that's where God's called you to, not to these these walls. But for this particular week, where really we come to the apex of our faith, uh, we've really set aside some time to be together as a community of faith, and I would just encourage you uh, to come and 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 take advantage of those opportunities uh, to make, especially if you have kids to rehearse the story of the gospel with them this week. Uh, To come and let's do that together. And so all those things that we laid out that are going to happen this week really really kind of allow this, if there's one week to be busy doing uh, church things and worshiping, it's this week. Uh, And so just just a second advertisement for that, okay? Uh, This morning we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the 27th chapter, and we're going to read nine verses from verse 45. To verse fifty-four, it's printed for you in your worship folder and in the insert there. It'll also be on the screen behind me, and you're more than welcome to follow along
1: in a Bible if you have one. Okay,
0: let's read together now. From the sixth hour, which, if you have a Bible, down in the footnote, you'll see that means noon. So, from the sixth hour or noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli." Lama sabak fani, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now this gets crazy. You ready? Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. You think? Right? And they said, truly. This was the Son of God. This is God's Word. We have been following Jesus on his journey to the cross. And this is, these verses here, this experience of these six hours or so that he hung upon the cross are the reason why he came into the world. The cross was not an accident. It was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. It was the plan from the foundation of the earth between the Father, Son, and Spirit that Christ. Jesus would come into the world to suffer and die in our place. So Christianity begins and ends with the cross. It's about the cross. Jesus came into the world to die. And his death, as we've seen, his death did not signal his defeat. In fact, it's the exact opposite. His death signaled his gaining victory over sin and death and hell itself. And so Jesus turns to us and says, as those who would follow after him, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that means, if you're a Christian, then the cross uh, is not only something that Jesus did. The cross is how you understand your life. The cross is the, the trajectory of your life. It is your goal. It's also your methodology. You walk through life carrying a cross. In other words, you know, there's a cross in every loving of every person. There's a cross in every relationship, a cross in your parenting, a cross in your finances, right? Every relationship, every thing you're doing in your life is a chance for you to die for the sake of other people so cross there see and then Paul goes on in Galatians 6 to say uh, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ and by that he means that the cross should be the, the very core of our identity the very center of our lives that the cross should be our boast it should be the thing that is most precious the thing that brings confidence uh, into our life the most important the greatest treasure and delight of our life and our heart the cross so this morning we have to kind of dig into these verses. Then, if the cross is really that central, then it's good that we've taken a Sunday, Palm Sunday, to look at the cross, talk about it, and I want to do so under these three headings. If you see there in your outline uh, on the back side of that insert, we're going to talk about just these three things, we're going to answer these three questions. Uh, question number one: Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? Secondly, what did his death accomplish? And then thirdly, what should our response be? And it's very, it's very convenient uh, in this particular passage that this first question, why did Jesus have to die? We're going to look at verses 45 through 50. And then what did his death accomplish? We're going to look at verses 51 through 53. And then in verse 54, we're going to see what our response should be. And we're going to do it just by looking at this. Uh, first, the forsaken son. Secondly, the torn veil and the shaking earth. And then thirdly, the awed soldiers. Okay, those three points. Let's just start here with the forsaken son. Why did Jesus have to die? You see, the fundamental human problem, what's wrong with our lives? What's wrong with our world? Okay. What Christianity believes, the answer to that question, the fundamental human problem that we experience and that we face is that we've lost God. We've lost God. Uh, We're alienated from him. And there's this imagery in these verses, in verse 51 particularly, of this curtain. You see that? Behold, the curtain of the temple. And this, this curtain, it was the temple... Curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, you know, kind of in the Jewish religious construct. And the temple, excuse me, the curtain in the temple was this huge eight story tall curtain, so thick that it was basically soundproof, really impenetrable in many ways. And on the curtain was embroidered cherubim with flaming swords, signifying, if you remember the story in Genesis, uh, the exile from Eden where Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and God posted. Two cherubim with flaming swords to guard the entrance to the garden and to prevent anybody from getting back in. And so, you can see the symbolism here of this curtain trying to teach a very important truth, and that is that the way to God is barred. I mean, the way into God's presence is barred. Now, we were made... Excuse me, I'm having trouble. We were made to walk and talk with him. We were made to live with him. We were made... Uh, to, to find our happiness in him. We, what the Bible says is we, as his creatures, we need him the way the flowers need the sun to grow. We can't live without him. That's why I'm reading John Calvin, of all things. But John Calvin says that no matter how good things are circumstantially in our lives, we still live, uh, you know, we are unconsciously unhappy, he says. We've lost him. We need him. We can't live without him, but we've lost him. We're separated from him. And, and that gives us insight into this whole temple setup in Judaism, which was meant to teach and to reinforce this very truth. Because, of course, in Judaism, the way the temple was set up, if you were a Gentile, which is most of us in this room, then you couldn't even come in the front. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you couldn't even come in the front door. Uh, because there was, there was a court of the Gentiles that, that was on the outside of the temple. And if you were a Gentile, then there was the door into the temple. You couldn't even get inside the front door. And then, of course, if you were a Jewish woman, uh, you could go in the front door, but there was only, you know, you'd only go so far into that. There was Then there was the court of the women, and so the women got to go a little bit further. And then, of course, if you were fortunate enough to be Jewish and male, then, you know, you could go a little bit further in, but still there was only so far uh, that you could go. Thanks, Max. I don't know if water's going to help, but we will try. I've got phlegm. <clears throat> I don't know what's happening. Thank you. Okay, so if you were, if you were fortunate enough to be Jewish and male, then, then you could go a little bit further in, but still kind of, it was kind of halfway because then if you were a priest, so if you were a professional Christian, if you were consecrated and God, you know, had put his, you know, seal on you, and you had been anointed as a priest, then you could go a little further than everybody else, but then there was the curtain. And behind the curtain was where the ark of God was, and the ark of God symbolized the presence of God, the throne of God, Uh, and so it was the earthly symbol of God's presence. The holy of holies is what the area back there was called. It was the place where God's presence dwelled, and only, the only person that could go into that room where God was, was the high priest, so the priest. You know, the the, the greatest priest, uh, the high priest. And he only went in there one day out of the year. And when he did, he went in with his knees knocking. In fact, the custom was, literally, this is not a joke. The custom was to tie a rope around his ankle. He would go in on the day of atonement to sprinkle blood upon the altar to make atonement for the people's sins. And when he went in, they would tie a rope around his ankle in case, while he was in there, God got angry and struck him dead so they could pull him back out. Because they knew if somebody had to go in To get them, what was gonna happen? They were dead meat. And and so this whole this whole thing was meant to to convey God is distant, He's unapproachable, He's inaccessible, He's hidden, we've lost Him, we're separated from Him. The way is barred. That's what that temple imagery uh, is there. Now the other part of the story, which the temple reminds us of and the curtain reminds us of, is that it's our sins, it's our sins that have created this distance, right? Because there, we read in Isaiah, that he, Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 nine two, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. The cherubim are there, and it's a, it's a reminder of, there was a time where we walked, and we talked with him in a garden, and yet we turned our back on him, we rebelled against him, we wanted to be God rather than to serve God, and in our sin and our rebellion, Uh, we've lost him, and he's turned his face away from us, and he no longer hears us. And the curtain was there to remind us of this, that we've lost him, we're distant, we're separated from him, his face is hidden from us. Now, I want to get at this a couple of ways, practically and then theologically. I want to try to explain what I mean by this, okay? So, practically. uh, I didn't clear this with my wife, so pray for me, because I could get in trouble. I don't think I will. She's like, oh, great. What are you going to say? Okay? Practically. Let's talk about this for just a second. Sin destroys intimacy and creates distance, relationally. Let's just, just relationally, okay? So, uh, just as an example, uh, just let me offer a little interaction between Ashley and I, so you can see this, okay? We're sinners too. It's okay, right? So, um, the grass in the yard is just now beginning to grow, right? And you know what happens right at the beginning of the spring, right? The grass gets really all uneven and kind of looks yucky, And so uh, last weekend, uh, both Ashley and I, you know, it occurs to both of us that it's time to get the lawnmower out and mow it. So Saturday comes along and she asks me what my plans are and she tells me, you know, we really need to cut grass. Uh, Throughout the day, as we're going along, you know, and things are kind of unfolding, she drops a couple of hints and reminders. And I think, if I'm right, I think even she expresses, you know, we don't really do a good job of taking care of our house. Okay? I begin to feel accused. She, she just wants the grass mode, right? No big deal. But what I hear is, look at that uneven grass out there. You know, you're a failure as a man. What a loser, right? That's what I hear. That's what I hear. She's not saying that. She's shaking her head. No, 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 no. no she's not saying that, but that's what I hear, right? And so about the third time, we have this passing comment about the, the grass being mode, You know, I get defensive and I blow up. And I say, you know, don't you know how busy I've been? Right? And anyway, the lawnmower is broken, and so I have to borrow the neighbor's lawnmower, and they're not home right now, so I, you know. And then the rest of the day, what happens? Right? Distance. Not open hostility. You know, we're too moralistic to, to do that. I mean, we're too kind by temperament. But just distance. Just, you know, just cool. Now, theologically, okay? So, so, so see, sin creates, sin creates distance, separation. It, it disrupts relationship and intimacy. Okay, but theologically, just like in any relationship, you know, sins creates, sin creates distance. It's the same in our relationship with God. I mean, he's a person we're relating to. And so this is what Isaiah 7, but Isaiah fifty-two 59-2 is saying. But there's also a theological reason for this sense of distance. Deuteronomy 32, five says this of the Lord. His work is perfect, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God is perfectly just. He does not sin. He is so pure, so utterly apart from any wickedness that he can't abide it. He can't, he can't overlook it. I mean, actually... Uh, praise the Lord, can overlook my sinning against her and forgive me. In fact, she has to. She has no other choice. And I remind her of that all the time. (laughs) Right? Because she's a sinner too. So she has to forgive me. But God can't just pass it off. Because there's no sin in him. He's he's perfectly just. I mean, he, he is infinitely holy. And his holiness and his justice demand that he punish sin and so the separation now the beautiful truth of the gospel is just this is that God was not content to live without us God could not bear the pain of the distance of our, that our sin had created he loves us uh, he, he wants us he wants to live with us and to have a share in the love and the fellowship of the trinity uh, father son and holy spirit but how I mean, how how would God overcome the distance to reconcile us to himself? How did he, how are we shown how he moves into the distance that has been created by our sins to overcome it and bring us to himself? And it's through the forsaken son. It's through the forsaken son. Now, what I want you to see is this. Matthew reports that from noon until 3, verse 45, darkness fell over the whole land. Do you see that? Jesus is on the cross, and, and the sky goes dark. Now, the word could mean land. It could mean earth. Most people say it's probably the land, in other words, and, and we're not really sure what this is. Well, it's probably not an eclipse, because there's nothing in the lunar calendar, you know, and all that kind of stuff that would show us that that was really time for that. Uh, it's it's not, probably not. Some people say maybe it was a sandstorm, uh, you know, and, and that blotted out the earth. I am of the opinion, and this is just me. I'm, I really think it's earth, because it, What I think is happening, there's something supernatural happening here, and the prophets talk about it over and over and over again in places like Amos 8, 9 and 10, and Joel 3, 14 and 15, and Isaiah 13, where they speak of the day when God is going to come in his wrath and punish sin. And it's this language of this day of reckoning, the day of the Lord, in which God is going to come and lay down his wrath against sin and evil. And we're told there in those passages in the prophets that the sky will go dark and here darkness has come over the land i think over the whole earth because god is coming in judgment and no matter how frightening it would have been to everybody there not only is it getting dark in the sky but it has grown dark in the soul of jesus christ as he hangs upon the cross because god's coming against him i mean as much as the darkness invades the darkness is invading the soul of Jesus, And I say that because out of the darkness in verse 46 comes this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22 here. Let me just read a little bit of Psalm 22. Just listen to these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Be not far from me. See, this is a prayer, Psalm 22, of a man uh, who has lost God. That God doesn't hear his prayers. He's far from him. He's abandoned him. He's turned away and he's crying. This man's crying out in despair. Where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from me? It reminded me. Uh, we were at the park yesterday for a birthday party. And here's the picture I want you to get in your mind of what's going on here. Um, there was a little boy at the park. And I tend to, you know, kind of people watch while I'm there because I'm trying to scan the right I, I have four kids. And you can, when you have four, you can lose somebody pretty quick. You know what I'm saying? Okay, we're, we still got everybody in tow. But I, I'm kind of scanning the horizon. There's a, little, there's a little boy there in the park who obviously has run off from his parents as little boys are wont to do. And climbed up into the play structure and slid down a slide. And then all of a sudden, it was amazing to watch. All of a sudden, you can just see on his face, he realizes, I don't know where my dad is. Right? And then it's like, um, you could just watch the terror come over his face. And he just starts screaming, Daddy! Daddy! Where are you? And, you know, running around frankly, Daddy! Daddy! Where are you? Because he, he just, all of a sudden, he realized, Holy, wait a minute, I don't know where my dad is, and it just, it just blew up in his soul, and he began to be so afraid, and he began to run around, Daddy! Daddy! Where are you? And that's what's happening to Jesus on the cross. I mean, the moment... That little boy awakened to the reality that his dad wasn't there. He was terrified because that's the kind of security. You see that? The security and comfort and confidence that his dad's presence gave him. And it was true of my kids. I remember there was a time with Canaan, our firstborn, where the the boy would not go to sleep if he could not see us. So we had this little place where we had to sit, you know, and we would work and do stuff so that he'd go. Because it's that, you know, my dad's there, okay? Everything's okay. Now imagine the perfect love between the Heavenly Father and the Son from all eternity, infinite joy and intimacy and fellowship between the two of them. I mean, Jesus drew confidence and comfort from his Father in a way that we can't even comprehend. He even said, I am the Father, or one, I'm in him, he's in me. And then all of a sudden, the darkness begins to fall upon his soul, and in the moment of his greatest agony and need, he calls to the Father, and he's like not there, and it's like the little boy in the park. He cries out, Daddy! Where are you, Daddy? Where are you? And he's not there. I mean, how, how's that even possible? I mean, what, what's going on? I mean, on the, I mean, this is the Father and the Son who have lived together from all eternity, and all of a sudden Jesus turns and he's not there. What's happening? What the Bible would teach us is that on the cross, in this moment, Jesus is taking our sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians, which which Jonathan already alluded to, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus is standing in our place, and our, our sins, he's become our sin, and our sin has separated him from his Father. Our sins have hidden his face from Jesus, as Isaiah 59 says. And here's what that means. Jesus is barred. In this moment, Jesus is being barred so that we can be brought in. Jesus is being cast out. So that we can come near. Jesus is being rejected. Though he doesn't deserve to be. So that we can be welcomed. Though we don't deserve to be. And that's what we mean by the gospel. That's why Jesus had to die. He had to suffer our wrath. He had to stand in our place and get what we deserve to be rejected. So that we could get what he deserves. To be loved and accepted and welcomed. That's why he had to die. But we need to ask a second question. What does this death then accomplish? I mean what is the practical difference that it makes in our lives? And this is verses fifty. through 53. And so there are a couple things I want you to see here, okay? What is the practical difference then this makes? And the first thing we're told is that the curtain which blocked the way to the Holy of Holies in the temple, which remember symbolized our being separated from God, this curtain was torn in two. It was torn in two. It just ripped in half. Now, the symbolism of that could not be more stunning. I mean, what, what, what we're being told here is that Now, the way to God is no longer barred. Now, because Jesus has died, our sins no longer separate us from God. His face is no longer hidden from us. The distance between us somehow has been bridged. But notice that little phrase there in verse 51. It's really important. We're told the curtain of the temple was torn into, and then look, from top to bottom. Now, this curtain I've told you is about eight stories high. And it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, it was something, God did it. It was God's work that ripped this curtain in two and made a way for us to enter into his presence. And that's what the writer of Hebrews, if you look back at your call to worship, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I mean, I'm sorry, the assurance of pardon that we read a few minutes ago. And this is why I chose this passage because what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, he's saying, because of the work of Jesus, we can now come into the presence of God confidently. I mean, the high priest went in with his knees knocking, with fear and trembling and with a rope tied around His ankle, just in case God decided to strike him dead. But we are told that we, on this side of the cross, because of the work Jesus has done, we can come to God into the very holy of holies, into his presence boldly, with great confidence in our standing before him, certain of his love and his acceptance and his welcome, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. We can come through the curtain, Hebrews says, which is his flesh into the very presence of God. Think about that. Because on the cross, Jesus was ripped into. Now, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, here's what that means for you. You no longer have to guess about God's love for you. You can come to him with confidence. You can go out into your life with all the good days and the bad days and the victories and the defeats and the successes and the sins with absolute certainty, no matter what the circumstances might be, no matter how poorly or how well you have performed, he loves and accepts you. Now, let me apply this. If you don't live with that confidence, if you claim to be a Christian and you don't live with that confidence, if you... Don't, and I'm not talking about 100% all the time, but if, as a general rule, as, the, as kind of the feel of your life, if you don't experience God's nearness, if there's not intimacy, if there's not nearness, then that means it's because your conscience has not yet been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus and made clean. Again, from Hebrews 10, you're not resting in Jesus' work for you. You're still trying to earn your way into his presence through your moral performance. And when you think about your sins... It creates this uneasy feeling, right? And your conscience gets polluted and you conclude God's angry with you. But do you see what's behind that? The idea, what's behind that is the idea that you have to get rid of your sin before you come. And that's not what's being taught here. Matthew says, Matthew says that when Jesus cried out, you see that again here in verse 50, he cried out in a loud voice and then gave up his spirit. And from John's gospel, we know what the cry was. The cry in that moment was this phrase, It is finished. Terry, did we, get the stu- did we get the picture in there? Oh, good, Susan. It is finished. And that shows how utterly different Christianity is from every other religious system. Buddha's last words to his disciples just before he died were, Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were the exact opposite. Here's what Jesus said in his last breath Cease striving. Don't you dare try to do the work yourself I've done all the work that needs to be done and you can't improve upon it it's finished and if you're not a Christian I want to clear this up because honestly we've really messed this up can I say I mean we I want to put up an image on the screen that really captures the way I live my life the way most Christians live their lives I mean this has kind of been a new a new uh kind of I got it on my phone and on my computer screen Uh, is there another picture Susan or is that it this is the one I really like no there you go that's the one I love And if you're familiar with Greek mythology at all, you'll know that these are statues and a a picture of Sisyphus. It's a sketch of Sisyphus from Greek mythology. Who had to serve a sentence in Hades, uh, and his sentence was, every day he would push this huge boulder up a steep hill, absolutely exhausting himself with the work only, just as he lifted the boulder over the crest of the hill to have it roll down to the bottom of the hill so that he had to start over the next day doing the whole thing all over again. Right? And I, I love, can you just, I mean, that, that, did you just see the utter despair and exhaustion in that statue? Right? So here's the posture strive, work, do, get busy. But a Christian, somebody who's really come to grips with the gospel that Jesus does the work for us, comes to a different posture eventually, eventually, and more and more. It's not strive, not don't work, do, it's rest. It's been done, it's finished. You can take it off, Susan. That's great. Thank you. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher in London 60 years ago or so, would interview people a lot of times. And he would always ask them, you know, are you a Christian? And a lot of times people would answer, well, you know, I'm I'm trying really hard to be. I really am trying to be. And he would say, well, then you're not a Christian. Right? Because you don't get into God's presence through moral achievement. And this is the message of the gospel. You don't earn God's love and acceptance by being good, you have to put your faith in Jesus. And the wording in our confession and in our catechisms, and even if you pay attention in the membership vows that we take together, is this, it is saving faith is receiving and resting in the work of Christ. So are you resting? What does Jesus' death accomplish? I mean, what practical difference does it make in our lives? It causes us to rest. But that's not all. There's more, if I can even say that. Because we see here in this passage, this curtain was torn in two. And then the angels, which means the angels with flaming swords have left their posts. And that means, do you understand what that means? That means, the imagery means that the gate to the Garden of Eden is now open to us again. In other words, we we can not only come close to God, come into his presence and experience intimacy with him. But we can also begin to enter into and to live in his kingdom under the sphere of his reign and rule in Jesus Christ and begin to experience practically, tangibly, the fullness of his blessing and joy, what the Bible calls abundant life or even eternal life, we can go back to the garden. I mean, Jesus said it this way in, the, in Mel Gibson's movie when he's falling down on the road in the Via Della Rosa, and his mother comes up to him and I know, I know I've used it before but it's my favorite part where she says, I'm, I'm here, I'm here and she's trying to comfort him and he says, see mother, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. And at the cross, the darkness that was over the face of the deep at the dawn of creation in Genesis 1 came down again. And just as in Genesis 1, God called light out of the darkness and created the heavens and the earth, so out of this darkness, he calls forth the new creation. And that's what Matthew wants us to understand. Look at what he says. He says, the earth begins to shake, and the tombs were open, and the saints started walking around. What? what's that? I know I've used it as an illustration before, probably too often, but at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan and Lucy are there at the stone table, if you've seen the movie or read the book with Aslan the Lion who's been killed uh, in Edmund's place, and they are caressing his dead body, and then the mice begin to come, and they begin to gnaw on the ropes, and then before they know it, there is Aslan standing before them alive, and They're amazed, and the explanation they're given for this from the mouth of Aslan is just this. He says, when an innocent willingly gives his life in the place of the guilty, then the stone table will split in two, and death itself will begin to work backwards. And here, in Matthew, the rocks, we're told, split in two, and death, we're told, begins to work backwards, because the dead are brought back to life and go forth into the city. It had Lewis had to be thinking about this. All things are being made new, and so the line from C.S. Lewis, which obviously comes directly from his reflection on this passage or ones like this, is his way of saying that on the cross, Jesus didn't just destroy sin; he also destroyed death. Now, think about that for a minute. The Bible teaches us that there is death because of sin. If or when there was no sin, there would be no death. If there's no sin, there would be no death. Turning away from God, sin leads to disintegration and chaos, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, in all areas, until our bodies just literally expire and fall apart. Sin leads to death. But, here, but what if there was one who was without sin, who willingly subjected himself to death? What would happen then? then? Death would be destroyed. And it would begin to work backwards. And that's exactly what's happening. Jesus' death is destroying death. Now, I need to come to a close, but let me just say this. Let me make a general application of this and then a specific application of this. Okay, first, just generally, let's talk about this. Jesus' death and resurrection, this means, have far-reaching implications to every area of our lives. Now, let me just go as far out as I possibly can and talk about the rocks. Okay? Let's look at the rocks for just a minute. Uh, just a few chapters ago, which we did a number of weeks ago on Palm Sunday, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, you remember that he, he's coming into the city where he's going to die, and his disciples are there, and they're waving palm branches, which is why we did that this morning, and they're laying them down in front of him as he rides on the donkey into the city, and they're greeting him as a king, they're rejoicing him as their savior, and the religious leaders get really upset by this, and they ask Jesus to uh, tell his disciples to be quiet, and here's his answer, which I just absolutely, I love. I cannot tell you how much I love his answer. He says, listen, I can't make them be quiet, because if I shut them up, the rocks are going to start to cry. And so there so there the rocks threaten to cry out and joy at his coming. Here in verse fifty-two, the rocks split apart and the earth heaves at his undoing. In other places the Bible talks about the creation joining in the celebration of God's victory over sin and death. So Psalm ninety six, for example, where we're told that the earth rejoices at his coming, and the seas roar, and the fields exult, and the trees clap their hands, and the forest sings for joy before the Lord who comes to George, judge the world in righteousness and truth. Now, what in the world does that mean, except that the gospel is good news even to the rocks? I mean, that's why they threatened to cry out during his triumphal entry. That's why they split in two. The curse is being lifted from the earth. And if the gospel is good news to rocks, in other words, if the ripple effect of Jesus' death extends all the way to the rocks and the trees, to the ends of the earth, because the curse is being lifted from the earth and all things are being made new, Then to think that you could contain the explosion of the gospel and manage it and just kind of half-heartedly engage on a Sunday morning every now and then, well, that's just silly. I mean, there are far-reaching implications, but secondly, specific application, then then here's what this means, that if what God is doing is really that comprehensive... If it really reaches that far, then no matter who you are, no matter how guilty you may be, no matter how condemned you may feel, Jesus is a savior of sinners. And the veil has been torn in two. And if you put your faith in him, no matter how badly you've blown it, you can approach God, and not only approach him, you can approach him confidently. But then, also, if you feel like things are broken and beyond repair, no matter how dead you might feel, no matter how dead your marriage might feel or a friendship might feel, What we're told here is Jesus can breathe life into your deadness. That's the promise of this passage of Scripture, and that's what he accomplished. So I'm out of time, but let me just say, what should our response be? Well, a good example of this is found in how the soldiers respond here, and so let's look just for just a second there with the centurion and the soldiers in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. And we're told by Matthew in verse 54 that they were filled with awe when they saw these things. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, these presumably are the same soldiers who mocked him and spit on him and nailed his hands and feet to the cross. But something's happened now, right? Something's happened, and now we're told they're filled with awe there. Now, that is fascinating because that word, if you could see it in the Greek, is the word phobia, and we all know what a phobia is, don't we? It's an irrational or overriding fear. I am acrophobic, I'm afraid of heights, and I still maintain to this day it's because my father... Used to joke with me in North Carolina and like put me over the edge of the mountain cliff and like, "You're gonna fall, you're gonna fall," which he vehemently denies. Uh, and so there's there is there is a disagreement in the family lore about those things. Uh, we were in Chicago this week and you know it's the uh, the Sears Tower. Which do you now know on the Sears Tower you can you actually? I mean, people pay money for this. I mean, is this the dumbest thing you've ever heard in your t- people pay money? to like 5,000 feet above the earth, to go out on this platform that is completely glass underneath you so it looks like you're literally standing in, in the air like thousands of feet. No. <laughs> no. Right? Josh has a picture. Josh Nicholson, you can see it. Right? I, I'm scared. I, I just, I, I literally, if I, if I have to walk across a bridge, it's like, hey, okay, right foot, left foot. I mean, because I'm so crippled, and that's what a phobia is. It this, this just cripples you. It overcomes you. And these soldiers are completely undone. They're shaken to their core. I mean, they are, they are just falling apart. So for 14 weeks, for three and a half months, we've been following Jesus on his way to the cross. For nearly a year and a half now, we've been going through Matthew's gospel. We've seen Jesus do truly amazing things. And I just want to ask a question. How does he affect you? I know, it's a strange thing to ask. And we don't like to talk about our feelings, you know. But what do you feel? What's your visceral reaction to him? I mean, how does he affect you? John Stott, and this is it, I'm done. John Stott, a a renowned theologian and scholar, says that if you read the Gospels, there were really just three responses to Jesus. Here are the three options you have. Number one, people in the Gospels were terrified of him and ran away. Secondly, they hated him and wanted to kill him. Or thirdly, they worshipped him and gave him everything they had. But to feel nothing, I mean, to yawn in boredom, to relegate in your, relegate him in your appointment book to an hour and a half meeting on a Sunday, that is a cultural form of Christianity. It's not a genuine encounter with the person of Jesus. Because, if see, if Jesus was just a good man or a good teacher that we should follow, then we would be free to kind of pick up some teaching here and there and put it into use in our lives when we think it's helpful or whatever. But if, he, if this is truly the Son of God, if this is God dying for us in our place, then what other option is there than to bow down in worship and give him everything? And that's why the soldier's phobia is so appropriate. Because see, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you should probably be terrified when you consider the cross. Because the Bible says that the same wrath that came down on him here will come down on you one day. The cross is threatening, but if you are a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, the cross is threatening to you too. And so the phobia of the soldiers is appropriate because if you give your life to Jesus, he demands nothing less than everything. It's exactly what we're about to sing. The cross bids us come and die. In order to find life. And what's more threatening than that? (laughs) But that's exactly what he's called us to. And so let's pray. As we sing. Lord Jesus. We are grateful to you. uh, When we consider. The mind blowing proportions of the effect. Of what your death has accomplished for our. Salvation. We are blown away, and yet we confess to you that the rocks and the trees oftentimes have more spiritual sensibility than we do because they cry out. I mean, they clap their hands. They shout forth in jubilant song because they see the implications of the coming of the King into the earth to make all things new. Forgive us for how weak we are in our affections for you, forgive us for how tepid we are. In our worship of you, and as we sing these songs, would you come over us and grant to us the fear and trembling and also the joy uh, to adequately worship you in light of what we've just seen? Make us into a people that truly boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and who take up our cross and follow after him, that you might use us to be a blessing uh, to our city. Into our world that the ends of the earth might come to know and rejoice in you as well. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. What a hard song to sing. I mean, what, what, strength, what strength... Oh, the wonderful cross that bids me die. You know, and if you're struggling with that like me, uh, and you think, what, what, I really, don't even really know what that means, then what we need to do is we need to go back to the cross, and we need to see Jesus hanging there to make a way for us to come into the presence of God and the beauty and the wonder of that work until it melts our hearts to which we would say, I'm on my knees and I have nothing else to do but to give you everything. That is the kind of people that he would form us into. And the way he does it is by over and over and over again compelling our hearts uh, with the love that he has shown to us. And that's the promise of this benediction. And now because of the work of Christ, the Father is no longer bar. Your way to the Father is no longer barred. He bids you come. He welcomes you into his presence. His face now, see, it was turned away from Jesus. So said that now in this benediction, I get to pronounce over you that the Father's face is turned towards you in love. That's the truth of the gospel. And so receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Here, may the Lord turn his face towards you. Because he turned his face away from his son and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Amen.